Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Margaret Sullivan, the media columnist at The Washington Post and a former public editor at The New York Times. She was also the former executive editor of her hometown, Buffalo News. I wanted to talk to her about the media in the age of Trump after almost a year with the president in office. There have been a number of controversies over how the media has covered Trump in recent weeks, including the publication of Michael Wolff's new book, Fire and Fury, as well as questions about President Trump's mental fitness and how the media should report on it. Margaret Sullivan joins me now from our studios in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much, Isaac. Good to be talking to you. Good to talk to you as well. Um, I want to begin on on kind of a broad note, but I'm just curious what your what your first reaction to this is, which is, you know, we've almost had a, a year of Trump in office and uh, the last couple weeks especially have been have seen some heightened uh, interactions, let's say, between Trump and the press. Um, where are we kind of after a year versus where you thought we were going to be um, when he was inaugurated in terms of his relationship with the press and and how the press is reporting on him? So I think it's going in some ways better and in some ways worse than I had anticipated. Uh, The better part is that we've seen some tremendous journalism, great digging, you know, good uh, accountability journalism and a lot of it. And, you know, the great much talked about competition between The Times and The Post, but certainly, you know, CNN and The Wall Street Journal and Others uh, have done some really good stuff. Um, so from a purely reporting and journalistic point of view, I'd say it's been excellent. Uh, from a point of view of sort of trying to make sense of what's going on in a way that really works for the reader or the citizen, the news consumer, um, that's tougher. It's, you know, there's this kind of constant fire hose of stuff happening all day, every day. And I don't think that we've uh, been able to make sense of it or keep up with it very well. I mean, we keep, we keep reporting it. That's great. But I wouldn't say that the press has, you know, been able to sort of truly make sense of it for people. It's very chaotic. When you say make sense of, do you mean kind of put it in the context or giving an analytical framework to it? Or do you mean, what, what do you mean by that? I think that if you're a regular news consumer, that it's very difficult to get a true, you know, you would have to be um, constantly tuned in um, and trying to, you know, sift through all of this craziness, most of which is of Trump's making, in order to have a, a really good sense of what's going on. And I also feel that we've paid probably too much attention to um the distractions, the tweets, which are important in their own way, obviously, but uh, and less than we should have to the substance of what's going on, you know, uh, with re- with real issues that matter to people's lives. I I, I definitely feel like for. A year in, it seems to me that the things that are really important that are going on are kind of what's happening at the policymaking level at the at the cabinet agencies where a lot of things are happening and, you know, by executive order and, and things like that. And, and, and then also kind of the larger question about Trump's uh, – personality and uh, the way he talks about racial issues and, and all these things about, you know, um, 
who he is really does matter to people. I, I, I guess less so the tweets is hard because I know some people think, oh, we shouldn't pay any attention to the tweets. You sort of have to pay some attention to them. But but a lot of them have turned out to be kind of irrelevant. And the other thing is just which which I want to get to the Michael Wolff book. But a lot of the palace intrigue type reporting has turned out to be kind of irrelevant because it doesn't really seem to matter that much who has the upper hand in the White House because Trump is still Trump and the policymaking at the cabinet level is still going on. Yeah, and I think that for a lot of, you know, I, I've I've made a little bit of a specialty over the past year of talking to citizens about their media habits and their trust in the media. And one of the things I heard over and over was that the palace intrigue um, doesn't interest them tremendously. And it it also strikes them as a way that that the media is sort of wasting their their own time and the reader's time, um, you know, and we're very, very we the inside the Beltway and you know, a cellar corridor journalists are very focused on that, um, and that's why the Wolf Book has gotten part of why the Wolf Book has gotten so much attention because it speaks to our our particular interests. I, I mean, I guess I would say maybe this is self criticism. I don't know where you fall on this spectrum, but. I definitely thought that palacentric stories were going to be important because I think one of the things that I got wrong about Trump, even as recently as a year ago, was I kind of assumed that, you know, the last person who talks to him, he would kind of go along with that. And if Bannon versus Jared Kushner versus Gary Cohn got the upper hand in the White House, that essentially that was really important because that's how policy was going to be made. You know, if if the more moderate factions could could win out, then that would really change things. It seems like that's been totally wrong and Trump is who he is. And he certainly has some things that he's committed to, even if he's not, um, let's say, a policy wonk. And and so it does seem to me the, the longer we've gone on that uh, the palace intrigue stuff feels even less important. It, it almost doesn't matter who's whispering in his ear, um, except maybe Fox and friends. I mean, I think that that's that might be the biggest influence on him of all. Strange yeah. to say. Yeah. Strange which, to say. Which, uh, if you've watched Fox and Friends, is a, is a, is it upsetting. Um, it have is. you have you read the Wolf book? I have only read excerpts from it. I haven't read the whole book. Did you have a takeaway from what you've read other than what you were saying about palace intrigue reporting being overly emphasized? Oh, I mean, I think that it's – that the large picture it paints is – is true from everything uh, we know, and much of it has been reported before, but maybe not in as quite as dishy a way. So I think that uh, overall, it's it's true. Um, I think that it, there's a lot. Quite, there seem to be quite a few things in it that are that are inaccurate. Maybe they're small things, but it's it seems important to me to get all the small things right if you are going to you know, truly be believed on the bigger things. So, uh, you know, but I think that the fact that he's, that he, you know, look, Bannon has apologized for for what Wolf says he said. So uh, that certainly is some kind of confirmation. And I, with a few exceptions, I haven't seen um, people doing too much denying of, of what what's there. So I think that, you know, and I and again, I think that the overall big picture of this chaotic and um you know, very poorly run um White House seems to be what we've been reading in 
you know, newspapers and news outlets for many months now. Yeah. I mean, I do think what you were saying, though, that it's um, I've definitely talked to people where the attitude was kind of, well, most of it's true, which very well might be true. Uh, but that seems like the wrong standard. And it worries well, of me course a little it bit. It's the that, wrong standard. Yeah. It's Go the on. wrong standard. But but, you know, it. If you're going to, if you're going to look at sort of the, what the big takeaways of the book seem to be, they probably are correct. But I agree with you that you know our standard can't exactly slip to well, it's mostly true, so that's pretty good journalism. I mean, I actually don't believe that. I just finished the book, and one one line he has in there that I was curious what you thought about was, which I actually thought gave gave kind of an interesting window into his method was he said, "This is by far the most open administration in history," which I think he or in recent history, um, and I think what he basically meant was all these people talk to me, and yes. you know in ways that you couldn't get people in the Bush or Obama administrations to talk to to him, mm-hmm. and um, I'm sure that's true. But it's a sort of telling window into what he and I think a lot of people see as openness, which is, oh, people in the White House are blabbing, which they do to the Times and the Post all the time. But I'm not sure that that's a great definition of openness. No, I don't think it's it's open in a way that really serves citizens very well. I think it, it there is a lot of talking to talking to calling up your favorite journalist, um, you know, walking around and taking shouted questions. I mean, if you call that openness, I guess it's open. And Michael Wolff certainly found it to be fairly open in that he, you know, sort of set up camp there, as he said, uh, became a constant interloper, and no one seemed to mind. But I think that speaks more to um, a lack of discipline than to an effort to be transparent. There was a there was a piece in the Times by Michael Schmidt, who's done some incredible reporting on Trump several weeks ago, where he kind of interviewed Trump, and there was a big brouhaha about did he challenge him enough? And he did get Trump to say some interesting things, and a lot of people were critical though that he didn't challenge Trump's falsehoods and so on. And putting putting that interview specifically aside, I, I was wondering if you have seen a way of interviewing Trump that you think is better than some of the interviews he's gotten. I mean, I know he's doing fewer of them than he was at the height of the campaign. But but do you, do you have in your mind the proper way to interview Trump? Have, have you thought about that? If you ever got an interview with him, how you would approach it? I think that, you know, the art of the follow-up question is is important here. When you think back on the early interview that um, Lester Holt did with him, in which he talked about why he dismissed uh, Comey, uh, you know, Holt, I thought, was well prepared and did end up making, you know, getting Trump to make some important news there, which is that he said the Russia investigation was on his mind when he dismissed Comey. Um, so I think that that kind of thing, it doesn't mean that you have to be, you know, shaking your finger in his face or being obnoxious, but I do think that following up effectively is extremely important. I want to ask you a mental health question, um, <clears throat> not about your mental health, I should Who's? say. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, Good. Which is there's been a lot of speculation in in part occasioned by the Wolf book about the president's uh, mental state. And there's also been some feeling that journalists are not doctors and should not try to diagnose someone from a distance. And 
I was wondering what you think about speculating about Trump's mental health um, in terms of straight news articles or even opinion pieces. Uh, obviously, there's a distinction there. Yep. I've been thinking about this. I, I think – and actually, I've started my reporting on it and I had a chance to talk to Dean Baquet yesterday and basically asked him you know, what his guiding principle was on this very thing. And you know, what he said was that he doesn't think it's appropriate for – reporters to be speculating about Trump's mental health, but what what's appropriate is for reporters to be reporting. And so they can be reporting on what people close to him are saying. They can re- be reporting on what he's saying and doing. Um, and that seems to be um, the most appropriate thing. However, as of a few days ago, or whenever it was, when he really opened the door himself by talking about his own mental stability and calling himself a very stable genius in a phrase that will always be remembered, I think. One hopes, Uh, one hopes, yeah. Yes. Um, I, you know, it's sort of like, you know, he's opened the door to talking about it in a more straightforward way because he's talking about it. So, um, but I don't think that speculating about it or, you know, sort of interviewing psychologists about what they see from a distance is a good way to go. I don't. I don't disagree with what Beckett said. Beckett, being the executive editor of the Times, but um, what what he said, I, I guess I would just say is that you know reporters comment on um, the feelings or the kind of behavior of people they report on, they use words like sad, angry, um, you know, something like that to describe how someone is feeling, even if they don't, you know, they, they diagnose those feelings. The president was angry today based, you know, whatever. Um, well, okay. But it's one thing to diagnose feelings and it's another thing to diagnose mental illness. Right. I, I guess I, what I was going to say is um, words like crazy or unstable may have medical meanings, but they also have kind yes. of common meanings in, in our mm. the way we talk. And we would have a way of talking about our uncle who was tweeting at 3 a.m. about CNN or was calling himself a very stable genius. Um, mm-hmm. The way we would talk about him being sad or angry, we might say, "Oh, he's acting kooky today," or or whatever. And um, I'm not again. I'm not saying the media should do that, but but I think that I, I also I also don't want to have a double standard for Trump, where because he's behaving so erratically, you tiptoe around what you would otherwise would otherwise be obvious, which is you kind of describe how this guy's acting. Yeah, it's a little bit like the the discussion that went on a couple of months ago about whether. News organizations, you know, traditional news organizations should use the word lie to describe Trump's statements, you know, because this was sort of a bridge that had to be crossed one way or the other. Um, It was a term that they were reluctant to use. And eventually the Times did um, use it in a headline, I think, on page one or certainly in a story on page one. And, you know, but. But still, you don't see it all the time. But it's the same kind of discussion. You know, um, it does go – when you talk about lying, it goes to intent. Does the person know that what he is right. saying is wrong? Um, and while this question about mental stability or whatever it is we're talking about here, it's not exactly the same thing. But it it's kind of also fraught with it's, – it's not just like saying, well – he seemed flustered or something like that. It's a much more serious kind of issue. I want to uh, I want to just ask. You mentioned the post in the Times at the top of the top of the show. 
those are the two papers that you've most recently been working for. And I think a lot of people feel like they're both at kind of glorious moments of their history, et cetera. Um, what, uh, how do you kind of view the state of the Times and the Post right now um, as both businesses and in terms of the journalistic work they're doing? Well, on the business side, they've both made a whole lot of progress uh, toward finding a new business model. The Times has, I think they're at something like 3 million digital subscribers now. Um, I wouldn't say that either one of them is out of the woods on uh, – on a business model, and that is something that, you know, I think is of concern. But there's been, you know, we also know that people have been subscribing to those two news organizations in great numbers over the past year or so because they realize the importance um, of of a free press and want to want to support them. So on the on the journalistic side, you know, neither one of them has been flawless. Uh, news organizations are staffed by human beings. They mess up sometimes. Sometimes they make errors of judgment or framing. Uh, sometimes they make errors of, you know, accuracy and fact. And, you know, uh, the Times comes under particular scrutiny because it is considered, you know, People say the paper of record. I don't even know what that means anymore. I don't think that's actually true. But it is singular in its size and prominence and, and reach. And so there's always a lot of criticism. When the Times did the story about the so-called Nazi next door and people were very upset about the fact that it seemed to normalize this guy, that kind of criticism I feel comes – mostly to the New York Times. If somebody else did it, um, there would be some criticism, but probably not at the sort of volume and level that you hear at the Times. There's been a lot of that kind of criticism over the past year about stories like the Nazi story. I think that kind of fits into what people were complaining about with the Mike Schmidt interview about, you know, not challenging him enough that it, it's all under this. It, it seems like there's a desire from people to kind of have reporters put their thumb on the scale a little bit more, which I <clears throat> I feel mixed about because I feel like that's something that in when we're covering when reporters are covering other countries, they usually do. Um, they put their thumb on the scale in some way if they if there's if they're you know if it's perceived as there's a racist side or a side that's on the side of a free press in a country where that is somewhat under siege. But I also think that um it's missing the broader issue and that having reporters hit you over the head with with what you already know is is not the solution per se to to Trump or to to Trumpism or to you know uh, political leaders who are um, dishonest. Yeah, I mean the question here is, you know, are we tied to an old style model of objectivity or has that gone away? Um, and is that a good or a bad thing? I mean when when journalists try sometimes to be too even-handed, you know, you can get into a situation in which there's false equivalency and you turn an email uh, s scandal, if that's what it was, into something equal to uh, all of the problems in Trump's past. So, you know, there's no perfect answer on this. I think that thing that I think we should be thinking about is fairness. Not so much are we being even-handed, but are we being fair? 
quickly, uh, you said the times that you think the phrase paper of record doesn't apply to it anymore. Uh, why is it? Just because the media environment has changed so much? Because trust in the press is down? What What is it that made you say that? It's interesting. I mean, paper of record seems to suggest that anything that happens anywhere uh, will be will be noted and recorded in this paper. And if you look at the way the Times covers, for example, metropolitan New York news, that certainly isn't the case. It, if you look at how it covers sports news, that certainly isn't the case. I mean, it actually has moved away from being that kind of, you know, documenter of everything that happens in favor of enterprising reporting, investigative reporting, and original reporting, not just what happened, um, but how can we bring something to this that no one else has. Last question. What's your uh, what's your media consumption like uh, these days? You wake up. What, what, t- tell us what time you wake up and how your news consumption begins, if you don't mind. My news consumption is, is all day, every day. And it's it's not it's not in any kind of a very um, organized fashion that I can that I can tell you about. I mean, I'm I'm certainly attuned to Twitter all the time, and you know, I I read um, the the Times and the Post and the Wall Street Journal regularly and and thoroughly. I watch some cable news in print in print. Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, in, in some cases I do. I, I, I see the post, of course, every day in print. I see the times in print a lot. Um, but in general, I'm consuming it, you know, on my phone and on my laptop and certainly desktop. Um, you know, I, I try to keep track of the, of news that's on TV without, you know, without being constantly watching it. Sometimes I'll say, okay, I really have to sort of pay more attention to what Fox is doing and I'll concentrate on that for a while or MSNBC and, you know, that might be for a column I'm doing. But, you know, I I just – and I also try to um, keep track of some of the – you know, I'll watch the network nightly news and see – sometimes and try to kind of see what they're picking up on because – Although you might say, well, no one cares about that anymore, that's not quite true because on any given night, something like 28 million people in the United States are watching that half hour of news on one of the three networks. Right. So Just nobody who's know, on Twitter has ever met any of them. But yes. They, yeah, that's they, true. They, they no, that's, that's right. That's um, right. Well, no, you're right. I was just going to say about the Fox thing. I stopped watching Fox after the election for my own sanity, basically. But, um, you know, I had a friend telling me a couple days, you know, a couple months ago that like, wow, the attacks on Mueller are heating up. And I said, what are you talking about? And he, he watches a lot of Fox. And, you know, of course, this now really has been heating up. And that was kind of a early warning signal. And uh, it's it's amazing how uh, how often that is the case now. And it's clearly important to pay attention to. Well, and you know, Fox is the leading one of the of the three cable networks, uh, the three main cable networks. It it influences people to a large extent, and so you you know, even though you might think, well, it's you, know, you hear people say it's state TV and it's propaganda, um, it's also very important, and it's also got of quite an old reader uh, viewership as as do as do all the cable networks. So, you know, you have to put all of that in context. It's not 
it's not appealing to or serving everybody, but it's getting it certainly is influential. Margaret Sullivan is the media columnist at The Washington Post and a former public editor at The Times. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the program. Finally, after Thanks. me begging you for many, many months. <laughs> and it was fun. Thanks, Isaac. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Today is also a noteworthy show because it's our first show without producer Audrey Dilling, who produced the first, I don't know, 40 episodes of I Have to Ask and really helped conceive the show with me. She's off doing a really exciting separate project right now, and I have a new producer that I'm very excited about. But I just wanted to thank Audrey for all of her help with the show, and it would not be what it is today, whatever that is, without her. So thank you so much, Audrey. Need more to listen to from Slate? Check out the Double X Gab Fest, a bi-weekly podcast about feminism, gender, sexuality, health, politics, Beyonce, and other issues of interest to women and their friends. It's hosted by Invisibilia co-host Hannah Rosen, New York Magazine's Noreen Malone, and managing producer of Slate podcast June Thomas, all incredible people. Every other Thursday, get a heaping helping of feminist discourse about news and culture in your podcast feed with the Double X Gab Fest. Download and subscribe to the Double X Gab Fest wherever you find your podcasts.